Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me, as so many times in the past year, is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. And we're going to be talking as normal about what's been going on this week in the markets, with particular reference to the investment trust sector. So why don't you kick us off, Simon, by telling us how the markets moved this week uh, following the somewhat volatile period we've had in the last two or three weeks? Well, uh, we're going to end up in negative territory for the week. So the UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share will end up down about 0.7% and the investment company sector will be kind of broadly in line with it. Uh, in terms of the sector average discount, it's narrowed in a bit actually. Uh, it started the week at 3.7%. Uh, probably end up nearer to 3%. And just to put a bit of context on that, the average so far in 2021 is 3.2%. But um, yeah, no, interesting week in the market, as always. Uh, Still a focus on the inflation expectations. uh, And it's fair to say that technology stocks still uh, continue to be a bit jittery, uh, but perhaps not as dramatic as uh, the previous few weeks. Yes, indeed. Well, it is remarkable how quickly some of these things can move. And if you think that a discount is sometimes an opportunity, then uh, it's certainly fair to say that you can buy some of the best performers of last year at a discount now when you had to pay a very hefty premium only a few weeks ago. doesn't mean that's a good bargain, of course. It might mean just that there was too much demand chasing the shares in the past. We'll have to see how that pans out. Obviously, it's March. We're coming up to the end of the first quarter. We're going through the ISA season and so on. And it's often said that uh, sometimes the markets weaken during the summer at some point. We'll have to see whether that is the case again this year. Okay, let's start as we normally do by looking at some corporate activity. It's quite a lot to get through this week, so we may skim over one or two items, but we want to be comprehensive if we can. And we're going to start off with the two uh, Brevin Howard hedge funds. That's a BH Global and BH Macro, both of which have a dollar and a sterling class. So what's the news here? They've been trying to uh, change their fee structure. We know that. And where have we got to in that process, Simon? That's right. So both those investment companies uh, came out and announced the dates of their EGM, so Extraordinary General Meetings, that will enable shareholders to vote on the proposals to increase the management fees. And and as you rightly say, that's the catalyst for that is Brevin Howard turning around and saying they wanted an increase in the management fee, which is not the trend that we've seen across the wider investment company sector in recent years. So in the case of BH Global, they have their EGM next week on the 25th of March. And the proposal there is that the management fee will be increased to 2% per annum. But importantly as well, if that is approved by shareholders, a tender offer will be held up to 40% of each share class at a 2% discount to NAV less cost. In other words, there will be a liquidity event for those shareholders that wish to uh, depart. Uh, similarly, BH Macro, uh, their EGM will be on the 29th of March, so the following week. And again, this is a bit more uh, complicated in terms of the fee structure, but uh, essentially it's going up. The management fee will go up to 1.5% and there are various other conditions around it. But again, the similar principle, there will be a 40% tender offer at a 2% discount to any of the if those changes are approved. So it does look like there's a very good chance that Brevin Howard will get its increase in fees, but equally shareholders will have a chance to walk away at a relatively small discount to NAV should they wish to. Okay, so I think a couple of weeks ago when this first came to light, uh, at least I offered the suggestion that this would probably would go through, that people when they were when push came to shove, 
the uh, the managers would get away with a fee increase. But the board seems to have managed to come to some kind of arrangement here that actually does give, as you say, shareholders an opportunity to to leave the trusts, at least up to 40% of them could. But what? any idea how, how this will actually go when we get to the vote? I'm, I mean, I'd be guessing we get about um, 80% of people opting to go on with a higher rate. That's purely plucked out of thin air. But what do you think, Simon? Any idea, any clues from the tea leaves you've been reading? Well, you're a braver man than I. I'm not going to put a number on it. All I would say is that in the case of BH Macro and BH Global, both have performed particularly well. We've discussed this before. They both enjoyed a very strong year last year and really acted as a diversifier, particularly around this time last year, funnily enough, around March, April, when we saw that dramatic market sell-off that both the funds held up very well. And I think for that reason, they still are relevant. They still have a purpose in uh, many investors' portfolios. And therefore, one suspects, although shareholders may be uh, a little bit grumbly, to say the least, about an increase in fees, they'll be minded to to stick the course. But, uh, well, 80%, we'll see. We'll find out in a week or so's time. And do you think there'll be any knock-on effect on other types of trust? I mean, hedge funds always have charged higher fees than uh, what we call conventional investment trusts. Obviously, the trend in fees, as you said, has been steadily heading down rather than heading up. So do you think anybody will be brave enough, conventional investment managers, to come back and say, well, look, you've got to pay us more as well? No, is the short answer. I think that is uh, more insight into Brevin Howard and their view of the world and how they performed, as mentioned, in recent years. I think for most investment houses, there is incredible pressure on fees. Personally, my view is that I think the argument or the discussion over fees is slightly misleading uh, rather than just continually chipping away at fees. I think there should be greater focus on the performance fee element. I believe that's very valid. It's a difficult structure to put in place for open-ended funds, but uh, historically investment trust companies did see quite a big emphasis on performance fees. And I always thought the principle of that made sense. In other words, when a fund manager performed, delivered outperformance, they would get paid accordingly. But that hasn't been the direction of travel in recent years. I personally think that's a missed opportunity because, of course, in times when uh, you do lag your benchmark for whatever reason, then the shareholders are cushioned by a lower fee uh, at that stage. But huge, huge, huge focus on fees across the whole financial services sector. Right. So let's move on to some other corporate news. And this is uh, perhaps, well, we could dive into this via the fee issue, if you like. I mean, we're going to talk about Scottish Mortgage Trust next which I think has one of the lowest fees in the investment trust sector. And it is, of course, the largest investment trust in the sector. And we've had some news this week about the management of that trust. We know it's done extraordinarily well over the last few years. What's the news we've heard this week, Simon? Well, at the end of the week, it was announced that James Anderson, the manager of this fund since April 2000, will retire from Bailey Gifford on the 30th of April next year, so 2022. And obviously at that time, he'll step down as the Joint Portfolio Manager of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Tom Slater, who's the Joint Portfolio Manager and has been since 2015, he will continue as the lead manager when James retires. And Lawrence Burns will become the Deputy Portfolio Manager, and that's with immediate effect. So that's the big news. A lot of discussion uh, about it across the sector. It's not entirely uh, a surprising development in as much as Bailey Gifford have a a tradition amongst the partnership. Basically, they hit around the age of 60 or so, 60 years young, uh, and most of them do uh, retire around that stage. So uh, just this year, we saw Charles Plowden, the manager of Monks, take a step back. I'll retire even in April. It's just coming up, sorry, to that. Uh, and obviously in years gone by, we saw Sarah Whitley, the manager of Bailey Gifford Japan, 
who retired after running that uh, investment trust for a number of years. So it's uh, not a surprise, but obviously, as you mentioned, it is the largest investment trust. It is incredibly high profile. And James Anderson has really stamped his personality and his beliefs and his views on this investment trust. Uh, And that's one of the reasons one would suspect why it's performed quite so well over that long term period. So can you just perhaps describe to us exactly the changes he made? I mean, he has been the lead manager of this particular trust for a long time now, or many years. Um, What exactly has he done that is different from what uh, other trusts in the global sector, which is where Scottish Mortgage sits? What are the main differences that he's followed in his approach to investing with the trust capital? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. I I think the thing to bear in mind with James Anderson, you know, this is almost 21 years that he's been involved with Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust as its manager. And we've seen quite an evolution during that period of time of the uh, investment approach. So it's always had a growth bias. I think that's probably fair right from the very early days. But we've really seen that focus being uh, enhanced over the years. So the basic idea is, is they're looking for high growth, exceptional growth companies that they believe have the potential to deliver asymmetric returns over the long term. So their thesis is, and this is obviously James and and Tom very much buys into this view as well, that over the long term, there's a very small number of companies or stocks that drive the performance of the market. And it's really trying to identify those high successful high growth companies. And and obviously, if you look at the portfolio now, Amazon's been a very long term holding in Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and would absolutely fit that category. So that's the way they do it. But over those years, they have some people might describe it as a as a, a text proxy uh, investment trust. And I think that would be deeply unfair. Clearly, a number of the businesses that they own uh, or have backed do have a, a technology element to them, but it's much wider than that. And they've also been prepared to back private companies, so unquoted companies as well. Uh, Alibaba was probably the first instance of that. They backed that one before it came to the market back in, I think, 2014. And since then, they've really built out that capacity. Uh, and Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust has, has effectively acted as a Trojan horse for Bailey Gifford, the firm, to build up their expertise uh, and their network in accessing those private company deals. So these are what's known in the, in the media as unicorns. So they get involved in late stage funding rounds and back these exciting companies that are already up and running uh, and in previous times would have probably already had an IPO. But the idea that they're staying private for longer, that they don't need that uh, liquidity event, they don't need an IPO. Uh, and Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and, and actually a number of the investment trusts in the Bailey Gifford stable are trying to tap into those companies. So it has been very successful. Clearly, the performance has been very strong last year in particular. And we've seen huge growth. I mean, as of today, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, I think, is the 30th largest company in the UK, publicly listed company in the UK. So, you know, if you get investment trust companies, it's a very substantial company in its own right and has clearly been a huge success story. I suppose some people, being of a cynical nature, will say, well, the, obviously, the reason he's, he's quitting is because, you know, we've had this amazing run. He did 100% last year, the performance of the trust. You can't really expect to go on repeating that. And we have seen this sort of sell-off in technology. But uh, I have to say, I've known James himself for a number of years. I first met him when he was managing the European desk at uh, Bailey Gifford. Uh, and I don't think it's like that at all. Of course, it is an interesting question whether, you know, if our managers should retire at 60, some would say they're just getting into their stride. Warren Buffett, as we know, is still going at 90. He still had another 30 years to go when he reached 60. But I suppose the more relevant question for now is, 
is what impact do you think this will have on the way that Scottish mortgage is regarded in the market? I mean, do you think that this would be seen as, uh, you know, a star fund manager disappearing? I'm sure, you know, the team will carry on, but we saw what happened when, um, you know, Mark Barnett took over from uh, Neil Woodford and so on. What do you think of the market's reaction will be? Do you think they'll become a little more uh, unwilling to back Scottish mortgage or not? It remains to be seen, I think, is the answer to that. I mean, if today's share price movement is anything to go by, I think it was off 1% or 2%. But given the context uh, of its share price movement over the last few weeks, that really doesn't stand out that much. I mean, Tom Slater, who has been, as I mentioned, involved with Scottish Mortgage as the joint manager since 2015, is actually a very experienced uh, investment manager in his own right and I think highly regarded And I think it's very, very clear that the investment approach, the investment process that we've seen over the last few years, Tom has bought into that entirely and is likely to continue uh, along the same route. So I think the market, uh, if they're wise, would not expect to see any significant change in the investment approach. And I think the other thing worth bearing in mind as well is the the infrastructure that Bailey Gifford have, have put into place over the last five to 10 years. And particularly, as I mentioned, with regard to private companies, they've developed a specialist team within the firm to look and uh, to assess uh, those private company opportunities that they see. And I, I think it's probably fair to say that you need that greater degree of specialism if you're going to go down that route. And that's what they certainly appear to have developed. So it remains to be seen. I would see this as being a, a well-considered handover. Bailey Gifford have been quite good about appointing deputy managers or joint managers um, and, you know, I mentioned Charles Plowden, and I mentioned Sarah Whitley, and there are a number of other instances as well within their stable where they've had this very orderly succession. Uh, and I would expect the same thing this time. I suppose the final thing to say before we move on is just to say that while there won't be a change in policy, there may be a, a change in style of the way that the trust is run. I mean, James Anderson has been, as it happens, a very high profile figure who... Uh, how do we put this? I mean, he's, he's not afraid to take on people in argument and discussion, I think, about uh, what he thinks is right and what he thinks is wrong with the, the way that uh, the fund management community in general behaves. I wouldn't quite say he would cross a road to pick a fight with somebody, but he's a very combative fellow. I mean, is that going to change, do you think? What's been your experience of dealing with him over the years, Simon? Oh, gosh, how long have we got? I think that's a whole separate podcast right there. No, look, you're absolutely right. James has very strong opinions. Uh, and I think I personally would respect an awful lot, if not all of those opinions, to be honest. But he is very happy to to voice them. Uh, I mean, I think the way we talk about him is somebody that's not just content to make his investors a significant amount of money. He wants to win the argument as well. And that's been increasingly apparent in, in recent years. And if you ever hear him discuss value investing. Uh, I was talking to a fund manager recently who had the misfortune to follow him onto a podium recently. And uh, actually, sorry, I beg your pardon, James followed him onto the podium. And this chap has a more kind of value orientated uh, investment style. And the first five minutes of James's presentation was just destroying this, this poor, unfortunate investment manager and how he'd completely got it wrong and how value investing was never going to rear its head again. And that's very much James. I think Tom is a, is a different character. Uh, that's not to say he doesn't share the, the same views, but I think he's uh, he puts them across in a slightly different way. So, you know, for that reason, we will miss James. He gives very good copy, as journalists might say. He's very entertaining and well, and I've, I've always uh, enjoyed my conversation with him, I have to say. Uh, and we'll be interested to see how the market reacts to this. So let's move on from Scottish Mortgage, that was, SMT. Uh, let's talk about some more corporate activity. We're going to talk about uh, BlackRock Smaller Companies. That's uh, BRSC, where... I think we knew that there was some kind of change coming, but uh, what are they proposing to do? 
So this week, the board of BlackRock Smaller Companies announced that they were considering removing restrictions on the limit on their AIM-traded stocks. So at the moment, the portfolio can be up to 50% in AIM-traded stocks. And at the AGM coming up in June, after a consultation with the largest shareholders, they're considering proposing removing that restrictions. Basically, I think it gives you some kind of insight into what's going on in UK small cap in general. I mean, clearly AIM has had a very good run over the last year or two. And I think it's fair to say that over the last 10, 15 years, that AIM has gone from being a little bit on the periphery of the UK smaller companies and, and some fund managers, Aberforth being a good case in point, were very wary of uh, having any exposure to AIM and other managers would want to limit their AIM exposure. I think it's become increasingly mainstream and the companies that are AIM traded uh, are regarded in exactly the same way as those on the main market. Some people may put this down to a little bit of housekeeping, but I personally would take it as a bit of an insight into the way that the UK smaller cap sector is developing. Yes, it's certainly true that the best companies AIM are now very good, I think, and indeed well managed. And there's still quite a lot of rather more um, fluffy stuff down the bottom of AIM, but that's that's the purpose of AIM is to allow companies to develop. And I think I would agree with you that they have come a long way. It is also fair to say, I think, that some of the stocks in AIM, are, uh, if you compare them with other smaller companies, are more richly valued. There's a kind of because of the attractions of investing in AIM for uh, the tax benefits as well as anything else, uh, there has been a slight disparity in valuation. So that's very interesting anyway, that a big company like BlackRock is prepared to invest that much in into AIM is an interesting development. Uh, let's move on to International Biotechnology Trust. More Manager News, that's IBT, International Biotechnology Trust. Uh, what's the manager news there? So Carl Harold Jansen, who has been involved in this one for seven years, he's decided to step back from his role as lead manager. He's going to remain as a senior advisor to SV Health Investors, but the lead responsibility for the portfolio management uh, will move to Alicia Craig and Merek Poskichensky. I've almost certainly got that name horribly wrong, for which apologies. Uh, Kate Bingham, uh, she will remain the investment manager of the funds and quoted portfolio. And obviously, Kate's been in the news quite a lot over the last year for all her efforts with the vaccine task force, but still involved on the unquoted side. Yes, uh, I think it's fair to point that out, that she took charge of uh, the vaccine uh, procurement in the UK. And uh, we know the result of that. We've done extraordinarily well. And uh, so she's to be commended for that as well. Let's move on and talk about Strategic Equity Capital, SEC, where um, we know there's been a bit of a dispute, a bit of a Barney going on between a couple of shareholders and the board. Uh, where have we got to in that process? Yes. Yeah, so this week, an open letter to the board uh, of Strategic Equity Capital has been published from Ian Armitage and Jonathan Morgan. Uh, and together, they um, have about 77 percent of the share capital. Uh, And if you remember uh, from a a few weeks ago, they were the ones who requisitioned a general meeting. And this week they've published this open letter and it basically explains their reasons uh, for calling the shareholder meeting, which will be held on the 30th of March. And basically they set out their case and suggest that the current chairman has made a number of wrong decisions, not least with regard to the change of the investment team uh, and also the abandonment of the discount control uh, policy. So in this letter, Ian Armitage and Jonathan Morgan say they've talked to a large number of shareholders who apparently share at least some of their concerns. Um, the letter also points out the discount's been wider than 10% over the last five years, uh, and they contend that there's a sizable overhang of shareholders unhappy 
uh, with that decision to appoint the new manager. So we'll see uh, what the result of this is. But as I mentioned, the, the, the shareholder meeting is on the 30th of March. OK, that's an ongoing uh, issue. Let's move on to fundraising. That was Strategic Equity Capital. Uh, I'm repeating the names here just because some people said they may miss them the first time you mentioned them. Strategic Equity Capital SEC. Now we move on to uh, fundraising. Interesting news here about supermarket income, a REIT, S-U-P-R. Uh, this is obviously a property company that invests in supermarket premises. What's the story there? Well, originally, uh, Supermarket Income Re announced they were looking to raise up to about £100 million or so. But actually, um, this has proven to be quite popular. And they've actually increased the target size up to £150 million, uh, And that reflected the, the strong level of support that they were seeing. Um, they duly have raised that money, £150 million, And uh, some of that money has come from a uh, primary bid that we've discussed before. But in fact, even at 150 million, it was substantially uh, oversubscribed. So they had to pursue a scaling back exercise. But the new shares that will be issued will begin trading on the 23rd of March. So it's probably not worth going over in too much detail why this has been so successful. But supermarkets obviously have remained open during the pandemic. And also their online businesses has uh, increased as well. So basically, I guess the story here is that uh, people see this as a very secure form of income, essentially. What is, what is the kind of yield you can get on supermarket income REIT? So on a historic basis, it's yielding 5.5% at the moment. And that puts it uh, a little bit ahead of the average that you see in the, the wider kind of UK commercial property subsector at the moment. That's probably coming in and near it's about 5%. OK, so let's move on to another one that's offering a yield of some sort, which is Aberdeen Standard European Logistics Income. That is a bit of a mouthful. ASLI, it uh, obviously operates in Europe and it invests in logistics and presumably warehouses and, and things like that. Uh, what's the story there? So they were uh, looking to raise about 18.5 million new shares, looking to place those out at 105p per share. And that's exactly what they managed to do. They raised uh, 19 million pounds. That issue was also oversubscribed, so they had to scale back investors. Uh, and those shares actually started trading on Tuesday last week. And the proceeds from that fundraising, plus the fund's 40 million euro loan facility, will allow the manager to fund its near-term pipeline. Uh, and they are expecting to announce the completion of their 15th acquisition later this month. And the yield on that one and the uh, how that rating of those two trusts, where are they sitting at the moment? So the yield on Aberdeen Standard European Logistics income is on historic basis 4.7% at the moment. We've got it trading on just a very slight discount, about a 1% or 2% discount. Uh, in contrast, supermarket income REIT is on about a 4% premium. OK, so that's the fundraising this week. Um, let's move on and talk about some results now. There's quite a few of these. So again, we may skip through one or two of them just to give the headlines. Let's start off with another well-known historic investment trust, which is J.P. Morgan Cleverhouse, J.C.H., uh, obviously a J.P. Morgan trust here. They've had some annual results, and the story is what? So in their annual results for the year to the end of December, they generated an NAV total return. It was actually down about 11% or so, and that compared with a fall in their benchmark of about 10%. In share price terms, they were down about 12%. So obviously the discount widened out a little bit. But essentially that underperformance last year was down to gearing. Uh, obviously a difficult year to be geared uh, into that fall in the market. 
Um, their full year dividend, though, the good news is it's up. Uh, it's up to 29.5p, up from 29p, and that represents the 48th year of dividend growth. So very much uh, one of the AIC dividend heroes. The revenue per share was actually down in the year. It was down about 25% to 23.2p. So in other words, the dividend was uncovered, uh, but it used its revenue reserves in order to make that good. But yeah, interesting, William Meaden uh, has been responsible for this one since about March 2012. Obviously, a bit of a tricky period. In, in terms of stock and sector allocations, it was positive. They actually outperformed the benchmark. But as I mentioned, the gearing was the detractor. But if you look at uh, the top five uh, contributors in terms of the stocks, interestingly enough, two are actually investment trusts. So he had a position in Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, which, as discussed, did rather well last year, and also the JP Morgan Smaller Companies uh, Investment Trust as well. But it's uh, 60 stocks, best UK ideas. And uh, just quickly on where it sits in the sector, it's obviously in the UK equity income sector. But how does it trade and uh, what's the yield on that one? If I was looking to look at a uh, an, an equity income in contrast to some of the other alternative asset trusts we've talked about, what would I be seeing there, do you think? Yeah, so the yield on a historic basis is about 4.4% at the moment. Uh, and that compares with the weighted average uh, yield of about 4% for the peer group. So uh, a little bit of a pickup there. In terms of the rating, it's probably on about a 4% discount or so, and that's probably broadly in line with what we've seen over the last 12 months. Though Obviously, there's been a bit of uh, fluctuations in terms of the rating, as there has been for every investment trust over the last year. Okay, so let's move on now to the Smithson Investment Trust, SSON. This is managed by a gentleman called Simon Barnard, and uh, it is part of the Fundsmith Group. Uh, They've had a very successful launch uh, two or three years ago. And they've had some annual results as well. They had annual results out to the end of December again. Um, NAV total return up 31%, and that compared with a rise of 12% uh, for its benchmark. In share price terms, they were up 32% as the premium worked in uh, its favour. But um, as you're right, Simon Barnard uh, is responsible for this one. Um, it's focused on mid and small caps uh, around the world, and very much a, an emphasis on high quality companies, very concentrated portfolio, only about 30 or so investments. Uh, and uh, within the top 10, there are a few well-known UK stocks, Fever Tree, Rightmove, uh, Domino's Pizzas. But it has been uh, very successful um, in the results they pointed out since they launched in October 2018 at which time they were the largest uh, and still are the most successful investment trust uh, launch with 822 million raised at launch. But since then, raised an additional 925 million through uh, regular fundraising. Yes, it has been a very successful story. And uh, Simon Barnard has some interesting comments about the outlook for the market and for value and growth investing. Another, He's contributed, chipped into that particular debate, not quite with the same force as James Anderson might perhaps, but... Uh, He's certainly written some interesting comments, and I, I found them of interest anyway. Let's move on to Manchester and London, MNL, interim results for the six months to 31st of January. This is one I think you follow quite closely, Simon. What uh, what have they managed to do? So their NAV total return was up about 2 2.5% in that period, uh, and that compares with a rise of 12%. Uh, for their comparable index, which is the MSCI UK Investable Market Index. There's a bit of a mismatch there, to be fair, because uh, actually the portfolio has much more of a global tilt to it. And in fact, in the commentary, they point out their underperformance is driven partly by a rotation from growth to value stocks, uh, and particularly the large technology stocks that the the manager favours 
uh, have materially lagged more cyclical sectors. But it's very much sticking to its knitting. It's uh, focused on mega cap technology stocks. Its kind of uh, motto is long the future. And uh, the gentleman uh, who's responsible for this one, Mark Shepard, has a very large stake in the company. So he's very much aligned to his investor base. Yes, I had a quick look at it this week and I noticed on the website it kicks off with the view that our central investment thesis is that we believe in the increasing economic power of the machine in the two-century-long battle for supremacy between man and machine. Well, we all struggle with that particular uh, battle, I think, uh, Simon, in our cases. But anyway, very interesting trust. Uh, how big is that trust and uh, uh, where would I find it? Which sector is it in and how does it perform? Uh, it's in the global sector. Uh, it's got a market cap of about 240 odd million or so at the moment. Its short-term performance has been a little bit spotty. As mentioned, it's seen a bit of a rotation away. But over the last five years, it's five years NAV total return numbers. It's up about 130% or so. So let's put some context around that. It would find itself ahead of names such as Witten and FNC Investment Trust. They were probably up 100% over that period, but somewhere behind the aforementioned Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, which is uh, top of the pops, up 368% over the last five years. Splendid. It's one of the few investment trusts also on its website uh, actually uh, publishes all its tweets as well as information it releases to the market. So it's definitely in tune with the zeitgeist of the times. Let's move on to some results from overseas trusts now. Let's start with Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon, uh, BGS that is, Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon, which is Japanese smaller companies. Uh, they've had their annual results and I imagine they were quite good. They were indeed quite good. These are annual results for the year ended 31st of January 2021. In that time, their NAV was up 34% and that compares to a rise of 5% for the MSCI Japan Small Cap Index. In share price terms, they were even stronger, up 43%. As the fund moved from a discount of about 1% to a 5% premium. So it's very much about the stock selection here. Praveen Kumar's done a good job for, for shareholders, particularly in this period. And there's a number of strong performers that's really helped. They also made a second investment into an unlisted company called Gojo & Co. And that's uh, something that uh, is quite common to a number of the Bailey Gifford funds. Obviously, uh, Scottish Mortgage Trust is probably the best example, but a number of the others now uh, are starting to kind of dip their toe into the private company's market. Yes, okay. So let's move on and talk about AVI Japan Opportunity, which is uh, obviously invested in Japan as well. AJOT or AJOT. What have they had to say? So they had annual results out for the year to the end of December. In that time, their NAV total return was down about 1% or so. And that represented a little bit of an underperformance. Uh, their benchmark return was up about 3%. Uh, and in share price terms, they were also down 1%. So I think as we probably discussed before, this one is run by Joe Baumfreud and Tom Trina of Asset Value Investors, who are also responsible for AVI Global Trust. Uh, but it's very much focused on obviously Japan and smaller companies there. And the idea is to unlock extreme value. So in this particular year, They've been involved in two quite high-profile public campaigns with two companies very much in the spotlight. Fujitech is actually one of them, and that uh, ended up being their strongest performer in the year. But as uh, I think we discussed in recent weeks, they've actually raised a little bit of money for this one, uh, and they're hoping to kind of push on uh, and prove their investment approach. Yes, I mean, it's a relative newcomer to the sector, I think, is it not? It's only been going for about three years, something like that, whereas Bailey Gifford Shinnopon has been going for quite a bit longer than that. Uh, let's move on to Fidelity European Trust, FEV, 
which has also had annual results, but it obviously operates in Europe rather than in Japan. What have the results been like for that particular trust? So they had their annual results out till the end of December last year, in which time their NAV total return was up just short of 10%, uh, and that represented an outperformance. Their benchmark, the FTSE World Europe XUK index, was up uh, about 8.5%. In share price terms, uh, they did even better. They were up 13%, and that reflected the fact that their discount narrowed in the year. But again, Sam Morse, a highly experienced uh, investment manager, backed a number of uh, successful companies or winners last year. Swedish Match, ASML and Mo Hennessy performed well for him. Uh, conversely, ABN AMRO, uh, Sodexo and SAP did not perform quite so well. They paid a total dividend of 6.5p in the year, and that was uncovered by the revenue per share, which came in at 5 spot 1.2p. Uh, but despite Sam's good work, the management fee has been revised. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier and what they've done here. This is, uh, this is something that you do see now a lot with investment trusts. And this is the idea of having tiered management fees. So in other words, when you hit a particular size threshold, there's a lower fee to be paid. And that's exactly what they've agreed in this instance. Basically, in terms of net assets in excess of 400 million, the uh, management fee will drop from 75 basis points to 65 basis points. So really the idea being that you're trying to share the benefits of scale with your shareholder base. And where are they at at the moment? What's the size of the trust at the moment? And uh, how has it been performing in terms of market uh, rating and performance over time? So in terms of a market cap, they're probably about 1.1 billion or so at the moment. So they're a decent size. In fact, they are uh, the largest European specialist investment trust at the moment. In terms of the rating, uh, they're probably on about a 6-7% discount or so at the moment. And that's broadly in line with their average over the previous 12 months. Uh, in terms of their performance record, they've outperformed in NAV total return terms over the last three and five years. So over five years, they're up 87% NAV total return. And that compares with a rise of 71% for the FTSE Europe XUK index. So obviously, there will be a management fee revision there, you can tell, because they're well in excess of that. 400 million net assets. Let's move on and talk about another very popular trust, Alliance Technology Trust, ATT, Alliance Technology. Uh, their annual results have been out too. And this again is another one of the trusts which has had a, what we would call spectacular performance by uh, the general historical standards of investment trusts. Not quite in the Scottish mortgage lead, but uh, pretty close. Pretty close indeed. So they had annual results for the year ended 31st of December out this week. Uh, in that time, they uh, recorded an NAV total return of 76%, and that compared with about 42% for the Dow Jones World Technology Index. In share price terms, the return was even stronger, up 80%. Uh, and unsurprisingly, in fact, going back to our earlier discussion, um, that triggered a performance fee of just short of £25 million. So the outperformance was the result of the manager, which is a chap called Walter Price, very experienced manager, and it reflected his high conviction stock selection and also the overweight positioning in smaller, higher growth stocks. Uh, and some of the strong contributors included Tesla and companies such as CrowdStrike, Zoom, which we all know a lot about now, Square and Amazon. However, interestingly enough, it just shows how concentrated the benchmark is because being underweight, Apple cost the fund 3.1% against its benchmark. Yes, and uh, I can't help mentioning that uh, both Walter Price and Sam Morse were featured in interviews in the Investment Trust Handbook last year, as it happened, the one that came out. Uh, both very interesting. I mean, if you if you are interested in 
trying to get a little bit behind the names, as it were. It's it's often worth to read some of the profiles that appear about these managers because they do have a very distinctive style. I think Sam Morse, for example, would be very different in his approach to, uh, say, uh, James Anderson of this world. Uh, and Walter Price has his own interesting uh, take on the world as well. So um, they're all interesting people and they've obviously done very well and have 25 million as a result of it, uh, in addition to their normal salary. So not a bad year, I want to guess, is for, for those gentlemen. Let's move on. Biopharma Credit, annual results for last year. How did they do? That's right. So annual results to the end of December. Um, their NEV was uh, was down a little bit in that time, uh, but they paid uh, dividends uh, totaling 8.29 cents, uh, and that was ahead of the target of at least 7 cents. And in fact, uh, since the year end, the fund has declared a further dividend of 2 spot 04 cents, uh, which includes a special dividend of 0.29 cents. So uh, as you might guess, uh, the dividend is an important part of this story. This company, if you're not aware of it, invests in life sciences debt. It's a very concentrated portfolio. Um, it has a yield on a historic basis of about 7.6%. And they basically benefited last year from the, the prepayment of a number of loans that they'd made. Okay, so that's another good example of the kind of alternative asset yields that you can get by investing in investment trust. Lending to life science companies, you'd think that might be quite risky, but uh, the yield of 7% seems uh, pretty handsome. Let's move on and talk about HG Capital Trust. Again, another technology specialist. So presumably in the private equity sphere this time, uh, presumably they did reasonably well last year. Uh, they had a good year. Yeah, the NAV was up 24% last year. Uh, in share price terms, not quite as good, up, but up 21%. So a, a pretty decent return. I mean, HD Capital Trust is a decent-sized fund now, a direct private equity fund with net assets just short of $1.3 billion. As you say, there's an emphasis on technology companies, but you could almost call them kind of boring tech, to be fair. That, that's slightly rude, clearly. But the kind of companies they like are often those in the software space. So they have a number of uh, accountancy software or uh, kind of payroll software type companies. So the idea being that these are companies that have repeatable revenues uh, to often quite dispersed corporate client basis. So you're not reliant on one or two big clients for your repeatable revenue. And it's a, it's a formula that's proven highly, highly successful. Uh, last year, they saw a couple of uh, big uh, liquidity events for a couple of their largest holdings, Visma and Sovos, that generated quite a lot of money. But overall, that's just putting some numbers on how the top 20 investments uh, performed, and they represent over 80% of the portfolio. They saw revenue and EBITDA growth of 22% and 31% respectively. So as the commentary around the results noted, there was no obvious impact from COVID-19 on their performances of their portfolio companies. That certainly would appear to be the case. Uh, let's move on and talk about Octopus Renewables Infrastructure, O-R-I-T. Octopus Renewables Infrastructure also had some annual results, but this is a very recent newcomer to the market, and this was probably their full first full-year results. Is that right? That's entirely correct, yep. So they had their results up to the end of December, though actually they picked up from the period from the 10th of December 2019. And that was the, the date of their IPO. And their NAV total return in that time uh, was up 2.4%. Their NAV was uh, 98.3p at the end of last year. But in share price terms, uh, they did perform better than that. They're up about 16%. Now, what they've done is they've got the, the money to work, which is clearly probably the most important thing you can do in the first year of your life as an investment company. 
uh, and they hit their target dividend of 3.18p and they've actually uh, announced that there will be a 5p dividend target for 2021. But they've invested in about 24 assets so far, four countries, uh, the UK, Spain, Sweden and France, uh, and it's very much about uh, onshore wind and solar. So this is an interesting trust. Obviously, we know that the renewable energy sector has been very strong. We've had a lot of fundraising and a lot of demand for shares uh, because of the potential income and maybe a little bit of capital gain as well. Uh, so they've done very well, Octopus Renewals. I mean, they're trading at one of the biggest premiums, I think, in the sector, and yet they've only just managed to get their money invested. So investors are, uh, are taking quite a positive view about uh, how well they're going to do, are they not? Well, um, I mean, it's true that it's still very early days. And I think it's also worth noting as well, I think as we discussed in, in previous weeks, that we have seen a little bit of premium erosion uh, across some of the names of the renewable energy infrastructure space. I mean, I think the example we gave last week was Greencape UK Wind, which has seen it's traded on an average premium of about 14% or so in the last year, and it finds itself nearer to about a 4 or 5% premium at the moment. So still healthy, though not at the level it once was. And I think that reflects, in the case of Greencoat UK Wind, and there are other examples as well, that is a large liquid uh, vehicle. Uh, and there is this idea that perhaps it's a little bit of a bond proxy, whereas Octopus Renewables, it's a, it's a smaller vehicle at the moment, and probably doesn't see as much liquidity uh, as, as some of the larger counterparts do. Right, so they have a target dividend, Five uh, p, but that uh, they haven't actually delivered that yet. That's for the for twenty twenty one. Is that is correct? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay, and let's move on then to U.S. Solar Fund, another recent uh, arrival on the market. U.S.F. is the ticker. Uh, they've also had their annual results. What's the story we can compare there? Yeah. So again, relatively early days. The NAV was down just very slightly during last year. It went from ninety seven spot two to ninety seven cents. Uh, though it was actually up a little bit in the second half of last year. Probably the thing to note here is that the dividends for last year came in at about $0.02, and actually they've issued a target of $0.5.5 for 2021, and that's expected to be covered by operating uh, cash flows. The fund is assessing debt and equity fundraising options, uh, and they have a portfolio in mind should they be successful in that regard. But it's still relatively early days for US Solar Fund. I mean, certainly if you look at the liquidity of this one, so how many shares are traded on a daily basis, it's a lot less than than some of its counterparts. So having come to the market in April 2019, we're just short of two years. So they'll be looking to kind of move this one on a bit, I think. Okay, and that brings us pretty much to the end of the results. But we have to do uh, an update on... uh one particular trust, and you won't be surprised to know that that trust is Hypnosis Songs Fund, S-O-N-G, Hypnosis. We have rather banged on about this too much. I'm afraid we're on a kind of repeat loop, if you like, about (laughs) Hypnosis. It does seem to be one that's just caught the attention of people. Anyway, they've no doubt perhaps prompted by some competition. They have come out with some more information about the way they uh, calculate their performance and how they value the catalogues that they own. Yeah, that's right. I think um, you make a good point there. There has been some commentary around the fact that the disclosure of hypnosis has been uh, not as good as its uh, competitor, Roundhill Music Royalty Fund, and they seem to be responding to that. So this week, they announced what they described as the pro forma annual revenue of the portfolio owned as at the 31st of December last year. So just to give you an idea, they've looked at everything they owned uh, on the 31st of December and then worked out 
what they would expect that portfolio to generate over the next year. And the figure they've disclosed is just short of 112 million US dollars, which is quite a, a considerable amount. And it equates to about 11 spot 04 cents per share. So roughly speaking, that's equivalent to about 8p or so. So that's quite helpful because that gives us some idea. Now, that's obviously before costs and expenses and all the rest and clearly currency movements, which is not unimportant, but it gives us some idea of what we could expect that current portfolio to generate. Now, all the time they're making new acquisitions, so that will move around a little bit and they will hope that it moves upwards rather than any other way. And in fact, they disclosed that the variance against forecast looking backwards was about 0.4%. So in other words, they're pretty confident uh, that all things being considered that that 112 million US dollars is a pretty hard and fast number. So we have said that in the last week or so, they, they did trade at a premium and now they went to a discount for a while. How has the market reacted to these new disclosures that they've made? Yeah, the market seems to have reacted quite well, actually. So um, at the time of that announcement, that specific announcement, they were trading about 116.5p and they've ended the week up about 120p. So not a, a seismic change, but it's enough to kind of put them on a small premium again. Uh, and they seem quite happy to tell us about new acquisitions that they're making as well. I'm sure there's been another one recently. I have that feeling. Am I right? <laughs> you are. You're absolutely spot on. They've announced that they've acquired the catalogue of a pop songwriter called Carol Bayer Saga. And again, hopefully I've pronounced that correctly. But she seems to be an incredibly successful uh, songwriter and a, a list of very well-known songs such as A Groovy Kind of Love and Nobody Does It Better. And she's worked with a number of well-known stars over the years, such as Michael Jackson, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan, and Celon Dion. And I think she's a friend of Barry Manilow as well. But um, possibly of more interest is the fact that they've disclosed that the catalogue generated $652,000 in revenues in 2020, uh, with over half of those revenues generated outside of the US. So again, I think that's an example of hypnosis providing better and more disclosure around what they're doing. Well, I'm not going to compound my error of last year by inquiring whether she's alive or not. Uh, I'm sure she is. Uh, and if she isn't, I'm very sorry. And if she is, I'm delighted. Um, I won't make that mistake again, as I did with our friend Barry Manilow, <laughs> even questioning whether he was alive or not. OK, Simon, that brings us to the end of this. Apart from one small final item I think we should discuss, we could squeeze in. We heard this week that Ian Sayers, who is the director or director general director of the... Uh, Association for Investment Companies, the trade body for investment trusts, and a body you know well because you serve on at least one of its committees. We know that. And I've been involved with it uh, and indeed spoken at that conference not so long ago. So is that something, I mean, what kind of job has Ian done for the industry over there? He's been in charge now for well, 10, 10 years or more, I think. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he joined the, uh, the association back at the end of the 90s, 1999. Uh, and he was appointed chief executive in uh, 2010, so uh, over 11 years now. I think Ian's a hugely uh, respected figure across the industry, and he's had a huge amount of uh, success during his time at the AIC. I mean, people probably forget the the impact of the, the VAT case back in 2007, uh, which meant that investment trust companies could remove VAT on management fees. But uh, I mean, that generated £40 million a year was the estimate to the investment company industry uh, and more than £200 million uh, in back payments uh, for shareholders. So I think he uh, his involvement in that case alone, he probably paid his way and then some. But he's been involved in a, a number of successful campaigns over the years. 
Um, the retail distribution review, for instance, more recently he's he's pushed back, and the ASC has in terms of the key information documents, the kids, which is uh, again probably one for the investment trust Anorax, but they've been very vocal and actually for a relatively small organisation, the Association of Investment Companies. I mean, there's there's not too many people there. They seem to uh, have a very large voice. They seem to have quite an impact both on the uh, campaigning side in dealing with regulatory bodies uh, and the government, but also in terms of the media impact they have as well. Uh, And I think uh, it's been a hugely successful tenure under Ian's time there. Indeed, and I would uh, endorse those comments. Uh, We don't know yet who's going to replace him. I think that's the case. Uh, We do know that the AIC has also got a new chairman. It's a a lady called Elizabeth Scott. So it'll be interesting to see how the... uh, direction of travel for the AIC goes. Uh, They do a very good job with statistics as well, uh, helped by a committee on which you sit, Simon, absolutely. And uh, their website is, uh, you know, particularly useful and, uh, dare I say, it features our podcast on the homepage, which is, of course, uh, a very welcome thing from us and I hope for the rest of the listeners as well. So that's it for this week. Next week, we will be uh, coming up to the first anniversary of the first podcast we did on, on investment trusts in the dark days of the nadia of the market sell-off in March last year. So we'll look forward to that. We might do uh, might have a look back over the year and see what we've talked about <laughs> in that time. And uh, I look forward to doing that next week, Simon. That's great. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates, and market commentary. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.